Hello, everyone. Welcome to Health Formation, the podcast where we give you health and wellness news to use. This is Katie. I'm your host, and I am here today with my guest co-host, Beth. Hi. How's it going? Beth is becoming a regular occurrence on the pod. I love it. Love it. Today, we have a topic. I guess this is kind of part two in our little two-part series that I have developed from episodes 29 and 30 on probiotics, antibiotics, and the gut. Um, And so we talked to one of our colleagues, Richard Drew from Campbell, who is our antibiotic stewardship god. Um, He is the king of antibiotics and he works at Duke, um, does antibiotic stewardship there, and then teaches all of our students everything that they ever need and probably don't want to know about antibiotics. (laughs) Um, So excited to have you guys here. I am also in conjunction with this little series posting some parallel information on Instagram about antibiotics, probiotics, and different statistics that I found in researching for these last two episodes. So please check us out there at Health Formation. And if you have any feedback for us, definitely let me know. Shoot us an email, healthformation.podcast at gmail.com. And with that, let's just get right on over to our episode with Dr. Drew. All right. So today we have with us Dr. Richard Drew. He is one of our colleagues um, here at Campbell. And Dr. Drew, thanks for joining us today on Health Formation. Thanks for having me. Of course. I guess to start out, can you just give us a little summary of your background, how you got into pharmacy, um, how you got into Duke, and how you got into Campbell? Okay. Um, well, I'll make it short because you don't really want to hear the, the entire 40 years of that. But um, I, I was educated as a pharmacist uh, in the bachelor's degree, which doesn't exist anymore, a five-year bachelor's degree at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, I came to North Carolina to Duke in 1980 to do a postgraduate hospital residency program. Uh, and then soon after that, got master's in PharmD at that other pharmacy school in North Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill. Um, I stayed at Duke, uh, originally in the pharmacy department, but uh, since 1986, I've been part of the Duke Infectious Disease uh, Division in the School of Medicine here. Uh, and then about 20 years ago, just a little over 20 years ago, um, I had an informal relationship with Campbell since its inception to, to take students here at Duke on rotation, and that uh, relationship formalized about 22 years ago when I was formally appointed to Campbell as well. So I'm, uh, today I'm co-appointed at both Duke uh, School of Medicine and Campbell School of Pharmacy and continue to practice uh, both in the internal medicine function here with students in education. And uh, my expertise of practice here is in infectious disease. So how did you get interested in infectious disease? Um, it, it, that's a fascinating question because it, it, in undergraduate and, and even in PharmD, I actually did not like microbiology. And arguably, I didn't like antibiotics too much. And I, I think um, I'll actually credit one of the colleagues that, that we just lost to Campbell, uh, Colonel William Pickard. I, I got to Duke and, and really was not, uh, was, was searching, was searching for things that, that I wanted to do. Did I want to be a clinician or researcher? you know, did I want infectious disease or cardiology? And, and like many people getting out of school, I had really arguably no idea. And I had some absolutely wonderful mentors here, one of which was, was Colonel Pickard. And um, again, we just lost him and uh, I lost a friend and a colleague, but he was, you know, a mentor. And I think 
mentors in, in all of our lives are so important, whether it be professional or personal. And, and really, he kind of showed me, you know, one of the things I really wanted to be. He, uh, he was a clinician. Uh, he was an educator. I wanted to be both of those things. And, and uh, a little bit less of a researcher. I think I developed that kind of interest on my own. Um, but having said that, it's just a bunch of very inspirational people, um, and he was certainly one of the many people. I continue to be inspired by a bunch of very intelligent colleagues, uh, highly motivated, energetic colleagues, both at Campbell and at Duke. And, you know, it, at my age, it keeps me going. It's, it's just a <laughs> wonderful thing, to, and including you, a present company included. Uh, keep me energized and on my feet. So uh, uh, that's me in a nutshell. Well, I have to say that, um, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I was one of the students on P4 rotation that was lucky enough to um, do my internal medicine at Duke back in 1998. I believe it was March and April of 1998. Byron May was actually my preceptor, but the two of you were a team. So all of our get-togethers and um, patient reviews were done collectively in a group. So I remember vividly the lashings. <laughs> and I think at that time, you really did have uh, a love for infectious disease already, if, even if you don't think you did, because I, I vaguely remember all of my questions being related to antibiotics. <laughs> and Nipro was one of the ones that you got me every single time. There was one adverse effect that I didn't know. And every single week you would ask me the same question, even if that patient, you know, our new set of patients didn't have Cipro on board. It was like, you know, Beth, let's go back to Cipro. Can you tell me what? <laughs> but I will tell you that when I left there, I knew all about Cipro. <laughs> yeah it's still there it's still there <laughs> I guess one of the things that I think is interesting is can you talk a little bit about like the progression of antibiotics from the start of your career kind of to what there is now yeah um the again in short there obviously has been kind of a um you know a love-hate relationship with pharmaceutical development of, of antibiotics the yeah, if you look at the overall market for, for a pharmaceutical company to literally invest years and millions of dollars uh, in a product that's not used, you know, indefinitely like a diabetes or a hypertension med, they're used for short periods of time, uh, they inherently develop resistance even while you're developing them, right? So, so you're, you know, a diabetes med doesn't do that, right? But an antibiotic does, uh, even before you market it. Uh, bugs are clever. They're, they're going to outlive us. They have outlived us. They outnumber us. Um, and they survive. And, and so uh, the incentive for a pharmaceutical company to do that is, is obviously uh, generally not there. Now, there have been changes in the public laws and tax incentives for companies, et cetera. But it's really led, you know, arguably to um, uh, the bugs winning in many cases. And, and that is that there are many uh, uh, antibiotics uh, that, that don't work anymore and many pathogens that are uh, frequently encountered in, in both uh, the community and hospital settings that don't really have uh, a large amount of antibiotic options anymore. So I, I, I think we've had stimulus or stimuli, I'm sorry, I was going to use the, the plural there, in, in, um, in, the, in the recent past 
for uh, the growth of antibiotics directed at some of these pathogens. But there was really a time probably the uh, 10 years ago in, in moving forward slowly from that, where there are very few new antibiotics. And even today, there's very little development from a new antibiotic class. We're, we're kind of reinventing old classes. We're combining some antibiotics with some you know, ways in which organisms uh, uh, have resistance to it called inhibitors, beta-lactamase inhibitors. So we're reinventing old drugs, but, but uh, largely we're not introducing new antibiotic classes. So uh, things are getting better here, but we still have uh, a list of things that CDC very much considers uh, as urgent or serious threats to public health. And, and um, we deal with those today. One of the statistics that I found um, was that there are 286 million antibiotics dispensed every year in the U.S., which is 821 antibiotic prescriptions for 1,000 people, um, which I think is crazy. In the percentage of antibiotics that are dispensed, would you say that there's like a large portion that are unnecessary or what is what do you see from your perspective on that? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, my practice environment is, is biased into a hospital or an institutional setting. And we have very, very active and very aggressive stewardship programs here. We have pharmacists that uh, help lead that along with infectious disease physicians large committees to, to do that. And so we very, very aggressively proactive. But having said that, if you, you just take a step back and look at the data regards to antibiotic misuse, it's, it's very frightening. And arguably, it's a little bit more in your practice area, uh, and that is it's in the community and largely in, in respiratory tract infections. And so um, we continue to struggle with that. We continue to give antibiotics for to, to people with viral infection. And I'm not talking COVID here. I'm talking about your your basic upper respiratory viral uh, infection uh, that's given prescriptions for for antibiotics. And and there's the data still continue to show that maybe almost one in two, one out of every two prescriptions for a respiratory tract infection in the outpatient setting might be inappropriate. So. I, I think we continue to struggle with that. Uh, and the volume obviously is going to then be great because the number of visits to uh, ambulatory settings for upper respiratory complaints, whether it's sinusitis, pharyngitis, bronchitis, um, are, are one of the main drivers of, of an infection-related uh, visit to urgent care, to an ambulatory care center, et cetera. So that's largely where the continued misuse comes from. Our, our, are we perfect in the hospital? Absolutely not. I, I, we deal with shortages of information. We deal with you know critical people coming in, uh, having not you know they don't have a label on their head. I have a you know a, a, an E. coli in my urine, right, and it's susceptible to ciprofloxacin, and so we end up in very sick people using very broad spectrum combinations of agents. But I think our intent is to not continue that. Is to to make a diagnosis as fast as we can. So. I'm personally excited about some of the technology, the rapid testing, both in the ambulatory setting uh, and in the hospital to, to try to fine tune, to first of all, identify who needs antibiotics. And then secondly, to get the best antibiotics to them in the most rapid fashion. I feel like that a large percentage of the misprescribing of antibiotics is in our pediatric population because um, not that children are coming in asking for antibiotics, but it's the parents. And so the parents are, are bringing their children in, their child is sick, and they really feel like if they leave without a prescription for an antibiotic, then they're not 
being well cared yeah. for by, you know, their providers. And so I feel like providers feel pressure to provide prescriptions for antibiotics, even when they know they really should not need an antibiotic. Um, and a lot of times we'll see this practice where they're given an antibiotic and told don't fill it unless you continue to have symptoms and then you can fill it. Well, most of those parents are going to go out or even if it's just, you know, if it's an adult patient and it's for them, for themselves, they're going to go and fill it and they're going to start taking it. Yeah. I, I think patient, patient expectations is one of the many kind of psychological factors that we deal with when, when we're trying to optimize antibiotic therapy in both ambulatory and the inpatient setting is what, you know, what's the psychology behind antibiotic prescribing. And you just mentioned one of the many things is that patient expectations being satisfied in the pediatric world, you have a parent advocating for the child. I, I think we're actually, the data show that we're actually getting a little bit better in peds um, and, and probably making improvements and strides there faster than we are in the adult population. And simply because I think the parents are starting to understand that antibiotics have side effects um, and a lot of recent data on, on the value of, of your microbiota and, and how antibiotic prescriptions change that, right? E uh, even to a newborn taking in mother's milk with, with antibiotics in there, uh, you know, has some impact on that. And so I, I, I think we're making strides, but we now have more prescribers, right? Before it was physicians, now it's nurse clinicians and, and physician's assistants and all of that. So the, you know, and then dental practices, right? So we, we, we now have these expanded sources for people who write prescriptions. So it's not only just the patient expectations, it's, it's really the expectations and the kind of the baggage around antibiotic prescribing that we have to acknowledge and deal with. But I, I think you, you bring on a good point about where pharmacists and healthcare workers can really uh, make a first step in this, and that is to start educating uh, patients, educating parents, uh, about uh, viral infections and, and you know, the hazards and, uh, of antibiotic prescribing. And isn't there, um, I think I saw some statistic that the, for otitis media, even in kids, it, for ear infections where if it might be bacterial, adding on an antibiotic only shortens the duration of symptoms by like one day or something. Well, it, you know, the, when you're doing antibiotic trials, you have to say, well, what, what's the measure of success? Is it overall, you know, uh, clearance rate 10 days after you take the antibiotic or is it the time that you get better? And the majority of the data for otitis is time to symptom improvement. And you can, again, argue about, you know, whether or not a day you know, early of, or of getting better makes a difference or not. Uh, but certainly in a clinical trial, it may. So, I, I mean, there are some appropriate uses to otitis media, right? We, we do have appropriate guidelines for the patient's severity, you know, et cetera, the, the timing of that, if it's just an acute uh, episode. So severity and chronicity uh, go into the uh, selection of the appropriateness of antibiotics for, let's say, otitis. And maybe as healthcare providers, we can recommend an additional like step for patients to take before if they have a child that has an ear infection, there's some different things that they can do to help manage the child's discomfort before going to an antibiotic. Sure. I, I mean, symptomatic management is, a, is an important thing regardless of antibiotic prescribing. And <clears throat> excuse me, in the setting of a viral infection, arguably it's more important, right? Because if you give an antibiotic for a viral upper respiratory tract infection, you're doing absolutely nothing against the virus. 
um, and nothing to help the symptoms. But if you support the patient uh, in symptomatic management, and certainly again for a viral infection, you're doing more good with the symptomatic support than you are doing. And in fact, you're doing harm with the antibiotic for a viral infection. And so, um, you know, clearly you're, you're uh, right on track, Katie, in terms of, of identifying what the optimal therapy for that individual situation would be, would be supportive and symptomatic management. And that's going to help markedly more than an inappropriate antibacterial. So I have a question. So we've always in in community when we're counseling patients on when they're picking up their antibiotic, we always tell them, make sure you complete out the full course, even if you're feeling better. So, you know, you maybe got a 10 day course and on day five, you feel fine, but you still have five days left. And we originally were told because, you know, those resistant bugs are going to be still hanging around and then they're going to multiply and then that's going to create antibiotic resistance. So, what do you think about that? <laughs> Should so I, we still tell our patients that? Like, I struggle with that now. But we, I think that the duration of treatment over time has also been shortened. So right. we used to, um, it was 14-day course, then 10-day course, and then we said five to seven-day course, and now we have some infections that we can treat with a three-day course. Um, so it seems like we're learning over time that we can treat effectively in a shorter time period and not have to continue to use antibiotics over a longer period of time. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, Dr. Mills just answered the question better than I could, to be honest with you. It's just we have clearly um, identified that for many, many years we've used excessive durations of antibiotics. And you know, it, it, we always laugh at cycles of the moon or a football score or something, 10, 14, you know, and, 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 and certainly for respiratory tract infections, the, the durations have markedly reduced over years. Um, and now the, the efficacy is better, the resistance rates are less, uh, certainly the cost and side effects are reduced. And so uh, I, I would highly recommend that if, if uh, older practitioners, even newer practitioners have not visited guidelines lately that, that, that the durations of therapy, not only just the selection and appropriateness categories, but the durations has clearly been impacted over the, the last few years or so. Um, so I, I would recommend that, again, shorter is better than longer, and, and uh, as long as the shorter is appropriate. The, the problem with leftover uh, uh, therapy, Katie, is not just in, inappropriate duration, it's leftover therapy, because a lot of what happened and this actually has been uh, revealed in surveys of uh, older, I won't say elderly or whatever, because <laughs> I'm getting closer to that category all the time. But um, uh, older folks were surveyed in terms of uh, antibiotic misuse and whatever, and a lot of them were self-medicating with leftover prescriptions. So, and, and then they got partial courses. They didn't even get the, you know, the leftover stuff was not even the shortened duration. It was right. just totally inadequate. And so they were self-medicating. So part of the danger of, of the situation you spoke of is leftover therapies. Uh, and then it really gets bad because several of them are in there for years and years, right? Uh, you know, it, it was grandma's prescription five years ago and it was still in the medication cabinet. Yeah, <laughs> I, nobody can see you cringe, I can. But, but uh, believe me, that those kinds of things get revealed on these surveys. Fascinating as to why that instruction that you gave is appropriate, but I, I we, we just take the additional point that, that um, practitioners visit these new guidelines for 
the, the appropriateness of the shorter durations in many of these circumstances. Okay. So it kind of sounds like from a community perspective, if we do see a longer duration, it's more harmful to, for the patient to not finish it because of the leftover medication and they should still finish it or like, I still struggle with that. I don't know what to tell people. Yeah. I, I, I think the instructions are, are take as okay. directed. And I, and I would, I would absolutely stick with that because there may be situations that, that the duration is prolonged and that actually is appropriate. So if, if for example, we, we have a, a minimum duration for community acquired pneumonia in five days and you don't start to respond until day four or five because you have underlying COPD, then to have a seven to 10 day course is not necessarily inappropriate. Although for many patients, five days would be appropriate. So a delayed therapeutic response, for example, would, would potentially be something. So, and, and if you had a practitioner that, that you know, was not certain if the patient had bronchitis or pneumonia, um, had diabetes or underlying COPD, and, and you know, said, well, this is not your standard patient anymore. They're on steroids, they're on whatever, I'm going to uh, lengthen the therapy a little bit. There, there's maybe not a tremendous amount of data for that, but I don't think we need to second guess every prescription. I, I think we have to advocate that for most people, the durations in fact have been shortened. I mean, there's no need in many to most of those patients for that 14 day course. But the message I would give to the patients is take as directed. I, I, I would not abbreviate a course because the decision hopefully was made appropriately up front. Um, and then again, the avoidance of that leftover therapy is, is an important factor as well. So Katie um, kind of, she briefly mentioned the um, antibiotic resistance as becoming a problem. And I was doing a little bit of research last night and I was looking on the CDC's website and I found this statistic, which I thought was pretty alarming, which says that each year in the United States, at least 2.8 million people get an antibiotic resistant infection and more than 35,000 people will die from that antibiotic-resistant infection. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what a, antibiotic, what a resistant bug is and what superbugs are and what you think are some of the reasons why we're having such an increase in the prevalence? And also maybe yeah. a quick preface to that is explain what antibiotic stewardship is in case anyone doesn't know. Okay, well, I'll start with the last question first. And, and the, the antibiotic stewardship is a proactive, uh, and when I say active, active means programmatic uh, response to antibiotic misuse. And that is that, that there are formalized programs in institutions that are mandated now. So hospitals now are required to have these programs in place. Uh, and those regulations are now spilling over to uh, ambulatory, uh, long-term care facilities, et cetera. So the federal government is, is uh, acknowledged that these formalized programs, coordinated efforts, generally led by an ID pharmacist or an ID trained pharmacist and or an ID physician, uh, sometimes they're centralized in some hospitals and that central hospital provides support services for sister hospitals that they have, but, but these are all formalized programs. Uh, there's actually a set of criteria as to what the elements uh, require. They require uh, leadership, they require administrative support and authority, they require uh, uh, data collection and feedback to prescribers. So these are very structured, uh, well-defined programs. 
Now, is antibiotic stewardship something that you should be doing in the clinic regardless of this formalized label? Absolutely. Pharmacists, physicians, extenders, all of that should be antibiotic stewards individually. Uh, many of them are then responsible for the clinical uh, program within a clinic or uh, a set of clinics, for example, where there's still structured programs that are required. So that's antibiotic stewardship kind of in a nutshell. And I could go on for, you know, an hour or two hours just talking in more detail about that. Maybe that would be a subject for another <laughs> time. Uh, the, the, the issue about uh, superbugs. So superbugs are, are, are kind of the the algorithm of organisms that the CDC and others, World Health uh, uh, Organization, et cetera, identify as A, being uh, prevalent. So these are not you know, rare bugs. These are things that happen. Secondly, that, that there is little or no antibiotics that are available to that. And generally speaking, if there are few antibiotics available, then they're not very attractive antibiotics in terms of either efficacy or toxicity. So you know, the, we, we, the CDC defines different kind of threat levels. They, they define urgent where uh, we need to figure out how to avoid them. So, you know, it's stewardship, by the way, is not all just about antibiotic prescribing. It's, it's um, cooperation with infection control, right? So if you can prevent an infection, and by the way, how do you prevent them in a clinic is you vaccinate people, right? So if you can vaccinate people against pneumococcus and, and other things that they could get, they, they don't influenza, et cetera. Uh, that they don't get the infection, super infection or otherwise, uh, to begin with. Um, but as part of that program, the, the CDC, again, identifies these high-threat organisms um, and, and then uh, tries to advocate for every, every programmatic element you can, infection prevention, appropriate antibiotic application, diagnostic testing. So the other you know, part of this advocacy is if somebody comes in and I can put a label on their head you know, within, within three to four hours that they have a resistant organism in the bloodstream, I can isolate them. I, I can then, you know, step up the antibiotics to something that I normally would not have used, um, you know, as, as the patient uh, gets admitted to the hospital, et cetera. So it's a programmatic uh, approach to the problem, you know, everything from infection prevention to drug development, to diagnostics, uh, to stewardship and what have you. So that that's what the of the superbug uh, CDC alerts are all about. And again, uh, it's not just CDC, it's WHO and all of that. The, the organisms are, or the and stack of them uh, are well known. Obviously, the organisms affect different people in different ways, right? The, one of the superbugs is, is tuberculosis, right? And in, in the United States, we're fortunate in, in that we don't have the, you know, we're not endemic, for example, for multidrug resistant tuberculosis, but there are areas in the world that are. So uh, they acknowledge that and they put organisms like that on the list uh, because they need the same amount of attention um, in, in terms of public threat. But the bottom line is that that organism, for example, doesn't affect us the way that MRSA, methicillin resistant staph aureus, affects us, right? That, um, that's called a serious threat, not an urgent threat, because we do have some uh, antibiotics that are available in, in, in the last three or four years of bigger armamentarium. So I think that's what this, you know, uh, super bug kind of campaign is all about. And, and I uh, applaud the CDC and the WHO and any practitioners at the local level uh, that make patients and prescribers more aware of these threats. Yeah, I was reading another report that kind of extrapolated out 
the current rate of resistance if we continue. And it said by 2050, one person would die every three seconds from an antibiotic resistant bacteria, which is like taking us back hundreds of years or something. It's crazy. I'm hoping that doesn't happen, obviously, for many reasons. But whether I'm around in 2050, I, I, uh, I kind of doubt that. But it's not, not that it's not important. And, and I, I think I'm excited and, and energized uh, by diagnostics, for example. I, I think to uh, identify uh, the reasons why people get resistant infections, to be able to then prevent that chain of, of infection is going to be incredibly important. And that chain in interruption might be infection control, it might be vaccination, what have you, and then diagnostics to identify somebody rapidly and to treat them rapidly. So I, I, you know, I think we've got attention and at least the outline of a decent strategy to significantly impact that number. I think we can deflect that curve, but I think it, it takes all of us. It takes a village, right? And, and this village is gonna start with appropriate antibiotic prescribing uh, and in the in the areas predominantly that that volume is so heavy, and and that's respiratory and urinary tract infection treatments, and that's predominantly in the ambulatory setting. Um, all right. So I wanted to talk briefly about C diff because I thought that this was just a thing that was everywhere. But I was listening to I listened to a podcast that's out of Australia, and they were talking about some microbiome stuff and they were it had to explain to the podcast host who's like very educated about what c diff is because apparently it doesn't exist like in other countries we only have it here well I, you know some some of it honestly is detection and and the ways in which you detect okay. c diff so clostridium difficile is an anaerobe that lives in your gut uh, it doesn't live in any everybody's gut and many of us in fact when it lives in our gut we have an immune system uh, that directs a response toward it. For many, again, not problematic unless you have a toxin-producing strain. And so, you know, who's infected, who's got a toxin-producing strain, and or who's not having any immune response to it are all the variables as to whether or not somebody gets C. diff infection, right? So, you know, having it in your gut doesn't mean that you have, have a disease, right? It means that it's in your gut. Uh, and for many of us, the stimuli, whether it be you know, taking a proton pump inhibitor that it impacts your, your acid to take an antibiotic that kills off the protective bacteria and or, again, having a host that doesn't respond in any way um, to that pathogen and then giving preference to strains that then turn on toxin production. So I, I, I think, you know, rates of infection are, are, you know, maybe variable around the world just simply because the reports and the detection are different. Um, I, I don't, deny that rates of infection are different. Um, and, but rates of disease are, are highly variable with the, the ability to diagnose and detect it. Um, you know, we, we, we have different ways in which we do that now. We have PCR testing, uh, which again, just detects kind of the genetic material that the organism is there, but doesn't necessarily say whether it's producing toxin or not. And uh, some of the other tests that we have are not as sensitive, but, but they're more um, uh, specific for toxins. So uh, e even the U.S. is now, you know, uh, volleying about the optimal ways in which to quote-unquote diagnose um, a disease versus infection. So I, I, I think having it in your gut is one thing, Katie, and, and having disease as a result of it is a very different question. Right. So if you have a 
healthy, balanced microbiome and your the C. diff is able not overtaking your other bacteria, then you probably won't have any symptoms is my well, again, it's healthy microbiome plus immune response, I, I, I think would be the big, you know, first, are you infected? Yes or no. Secondly, uh, do you have microbiome that helps you balance off that infection? And third, do you have an immune response to it? So I, I, I you know, I, I don't want to complicate it or oversimplify it uh, in, in terms of whether or not somebody actually gets a disease or not. But if I were to kind of quickly try to summarize those three things, uh, I think those are the major determinants of, of whether or not somebody really has symptoms and disease associated with that. But you know, you're, you're getting back to healthy microbiome, right? And, and that I, I think is, is, is uh, one of the factors that impacts this because we, we know that on the treatment side of things, to try to reestablish that um, has been one of the strategies to try to treat it at least adjunctively, it's not going to likely replace, certainly not as first-line therapy, not going to replace antibiotic therapy. Did you get a chance to look at the um, allergies in children article that I found? I'm aware of the issue. I did not read the article. Okay. So basically what the article had said in summary was that the more antibiotics children were exposed to before six months of of age, they had an increased like of having an allergy or an allergic condition, so like atopic, atopic dermatitis, allergic conjunctivitis, asthma, or a food allergy. Um, and it was even if they were only exposed to one, it was still t- statistically significantly more. And they, they had attributed it to because the microbiome is developing and it inhibits the robustness of your microbiome. So I just thought that was interesting. I don't know if you had anything to say about it. I, I do. I, I... Remember, association and causality are two very different things. And so if, if you're selecting on a population that's gotten antibiotics at a young age, there's something unique about those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the question is, is that the subset or cohort of people that later in life, independent of antibiotic exposure, goes on to having problems? And that's what the studies have to tease out, right? They, they have to say, here's the, the one variable uh, that impacts uh, the predictability of topic dermatitis or allergies or, or what have you. Um, I, I think there's clearly biologic plausibility there, right? So part of what makes association into causality is statistics, right? Which, which I'm not very good at. Uh, uh, secondly is, is uh, you know, accounting for the other confounders and comorbidities that may impact that. But I think there's biologic plausibility, which is a third way in which, which, which you kind of make that not just association, but causality. And I think there's, there's, certain, there's certainly, A, a study that, that makes that association. B, there's biologic plausibility to that. So I, I'm not certain that there won't be studies later on that uh, control for confounders and un, un, are unable to see that association. First of all, if nothing else, it's very intriguing and, and uh, eye-opening that that, that that association has been made. And, and I think the more studies that help us understand whether or not that's just something else that's uh, making that patient population unique, and therefore then they're going on to the, those endpoints, or whether in fact it's the antibiotics themselves. But uh, again, I, I think it is intriguing. I'm looking at, uh, forward to more studies that... that make that association. I think it's important too, because so many kids have allergies, eczema, 
food allergies. Like we have, where I went to elementary school, there's a whole peanut-free classroom because there are so many kids that are have severe peanut allergies. They all have to be put together in the same classroom. Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, even when I was a kid, we didn't have that. Yeah, I, I, I think to put that all on antibiotics is a little different. Sure, of course. But, but ha- sure. But having said that, do, do, does antibiotics affect your microbiome? Yes. Does the microbiome later go on? Um, is the microbiome associated with uh, immunity integrity? Absolutely, right? And so, I, I, again, there, there's this, not only are the studies showing at minimal association, but there's this biologic plausibility that, that your microbiome is, in fact, doing a lot of things up to and including your immune system, right? So, so you know, having impacted uh, that immune system later on in life, is it possible? Absolutely. Uh, I, again, I, I'm a little bit more of a researcher and a scientist, and I look at confounders and, and bias and all of that, and I'm not saying the study's flawed because I haven't looked at the study. So I, I'm not going to specifically comment on it, but I think it, at minimum, it's very intriguing. So I wanted to um, maybe talk a little bit about how antibiotics in our food supply are affecting us as humans. Um, yeah. I was, when I was doing my research last night, I was on that CDC website and I saw this huge campaign that the CDC has launched um, to try to minimize or mm. control the amount of antibiotics that are used in livestock, but also as, you know, to treat infection in livestock, but also to prevent infection, and then um, hopefully to minimize how that is trickled down into our food supply, not just when we eat livestock, but also crops like, you know, our vegetables and our fruits will also get contaminated because it gets into the soil and it gets into the water. And so I was going down this whole rabbit Rabbit hole hole. of, oh my gosh, I can never eat again. (laughs) I preface this by saying if you choose organic, then it, the animals cannot be treated or have any antibiotics for the whole life from the time they were born until they make it to your plate. So if you're worried about this, and you can fit it into your budget, try to opt for an organic um, meat option because they're antibiotic-free. But obviously, yeah. I would like to talk about this because I think it's very interesting. So I, I, I think you hit on one of the many, many factors that are promoting antibiotic resistance problems. And, and if you look at issues of food chain, it, it very clearly has been um, you know, not just on the radar, but, but um, actively being legislated um, certainly more aggressively in the United States, uh, less aggressively so in other countries. But I, I think the U.S. has made big strides to recognizing and dealing with and controlling antibiotics in the food chain. It's not just treating infections, it's, it's growth promoters. Some, somehow giving these antibiotics to, to animals uh, makes them bigger, fatter, whatever you want to be. And that that's What's impacting the other problem is is that this it might be a, an agricultural antibiotic, but it's structurally and mechanistically related to uh, a mechanism of resistance that a pathogen can then share. You know, we, we get indiscriminate sharing of of uh, resistance communication between organisms, not not only within the same bug but across bugs, right? And so, uh, even if it's not, it, it's a veterinary antibiotic or a growth promoter, it still can promote resistance 
to, to antibiotics to A, organisms and pathogens that humans get, and B, antibiotics that are in the human world, not just in the vet world. I was going to say the reason that it promotes weight gain is because, well, the theory, I, th- I think it's just a, th- a hypothesis, is because it's affecting the microbiome and getting rid of those good bacteria and then the promoting of the bacteria that create like increased fat mass um, are the ones that remain. Assessing the quality of the meat that people are eating, you can see that there's like more less lean muscle and more fat in the meat and the quality of the meat has decreased because Mm -hmm. of the way that we treat and raise the cows, which then we go on to eat. Um, which obviously impacts our own microbiome because everything that you eat is giving your microbiome just directions on how to respond and how to how your body should respond. So, and it's vastly underappreciated that eighty percent of the antibiotics that are used in the U.S. actually are going to the food that we eat and not into the people, which is insane. Yeah, I, I think in terms of tonnage, you're you're absolutely right. I I, I think that number may be declining. Uh, with, with the newer regulations. And, and so the balance might be impacted by those regulations, but it, it is frightening the amount. And, and certainly worldwide, there's no question about, um, about the importance of uh, antibiotic influence in the food chain. I saw also that, that crops are sprayed with antibiotics, which doesn't, didn't really make sense to me, I guess, but um, that as a growth promoter, not just given to animals, but sprayed on crops. So I, I, I think you're, we're all losing sight of the fact that an antibiotic is a molecule, right? Yeah. And it may have antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, whatever properties, but oh, by the way, it's a chemical. And so we actually do know that, for example, you know, macrolides have anti-inflammatory activity. So, um, so there, there are pharmacologic or chemical uh, properties of antibiotics that may impact something, whatever we're talking about, crops, animal growth promotions, whatever, that may in fact not be related directly to antibiosis, but to some other property that that has. So that, that's why I think we theorize what's causing you know, growth promotion in animals. Is it, is it microbiota or is it something else within that specific? Because all antibiotics don't work the same, right? If we swap out antibiotic A for B, it, it's not a growth promoter. So um, the, the, there may be more afoot here than just antibiosis in terms of the way in which they're impacting crops or animals or something else. Having said that, the impact on humans is the same. And, and that is that, that antibiotic exposure gets into the food chain, gets into the water sources, et cetera. So that this is really a similar impact on, on humans, regardless of whether it's sprayed on crops or given to animals. Well, for the for the plant thing, um, at least for, so glyphosate's an herbicide, so technically, I guess it can act as an antibiotic in the same way, but the reason that they it creates more crop is because it stresses the plant, and so the plant thinks, okay, I'm gonna die. So the way that I need to live is to create more offspring and by offspring for a plant is seeds and so when you get seeds you get fruit and so the plants are going to fruit more because it thinks it's going to die because you're spraying it with this noxious chemical and then that's why they spray them because it makes it produce more but it's a short-term solution and it's creating a long-term problem because it's decreasing the quality of the soil so then future 
you're not going to be able to grow anything. Mm -hmm. And so then we're losing, rapidly losing availability of soil that can actually grow produce. Okay. So the last thing I would like to wrap up with is we know that antibiotics, maybe we've been ditching on them a little bit, um, but they are a necess- they're necessary in our healthcare system and it's necessary sometimes when you get sick that you have to take an antibiotic. So what is the best way to support and regenerate, I guess, your microbiome after a course of antibiotics? <laughs> That's the million dollar question. <laughs> I if I had a, a million dollar answer, I, I would absolutely give it to you. First of all, you're, you're likely over time to regenerate your own uh, microbiome. Uh, the, the question is, is that uh, timely enough to avoid everything from you know, diarrhea, having nothing to do with C. diff, right? Antibiotics can cause diarrhea from microbiome disruption, but not related to anything C. diff. Um, so you know, how, how long does it take for that? Usually the antibiotic is, is discontinued, and if it's not C. diff and you don't have colitis, et cetera, then the, then the diarrhea resolves as you re- regain your microbiome. Um, you know, can you stimulate that with, with, with probiotics or supplement it or what have you? Does that lessen the time? You know, we, we've looked at it predominantly in the areas of C. diff and looking at probiotics for prevention of C. diff, for adjunctive therapy of C. diff, et cetera. So the majority of the data are with the prevention and treatment of C. diff, not just disruption of microbiome. So it, it's much, the, the data are much more robust for pathogen specific. But there, it, there's a lot of wobble because when you say probiotics, you, you have to define what you're talking about. And, and uh, you know, between the strain that's used, the dose that's used and what have you, this, it's, it's really clouding our ability to assess this in any standardized way because there's really no standardization and, and quantification of what that probiotic will be. So, you know, is it helpful? Um, you know, I, I think in terms of C. diff and, and in terms of a recurrent and repetitive infection, there may be some support for, for prevention of subsequent episodes. Not a lot of treatment uh, data in terms of taking it adjunctively at the same time, although I'll, I can tell you that we have some practitioners here that would do that, that knowing that somebody had been on it and had C. diff before, they're starting an antibiotic, they would immediately start, you know, a probiotic. And I think they do that, you know, regardless of the robustness of the data, it's just probably not perceived as harmful or expensive uh, and perhaps would, would prevent an infection and at that point would be used. So I, I'm not sure I really have the, the answer for you other than that in most people, your microbiome will reestablish itself, you know, even if you're having diarrhea or GI upset, uh, usually stopping the antibiotic is the best way to do that. Do probiotics help that? Um, I honestly don't know, but I, but again, I, I think the harm is probably minimal at that point. Are the data more robust for C. diff? Yes, they are. But um, again, the variability in the, in the preparations, et cetera, make getting a definitive answer very hard. I think the data on probiotics is so bad because the we have no consistency in the quality of the probiotics that we're giving. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's a billion-dollar industry. Well, all you have to do is to regulate it through foods and not drugs, right? Mm-hmm. So you, if you call it a food, you can stick it in, in a, you know, in a health food store and, and advertise it on the, on the television, which I, I, you know, getting on a soapbox for just a minute, I think is abhorrent. I, I mean, to make 
claims. I don't care what their little little disclaimers are flashing. I can't read their disclaimers anyway. On the bottom, they're too small. Uh, but but they are clearly making claims to the public about uh, disease uh, prevention and sometimes disease treatment. So um, again, I, you know, I get a little bit more passionate when it's expensive and harmful. I I, I think the the expense and the harm of, of probiotics. I, I I'm not addressing the expense part of it, but the harm part is probably minimal at that point. Uh, uh, there are select preparations and populations I would not use probiotics in. And, and so, you know, not in everybody, but in most people. Uh, but I, I think, again, my, my bottom summary answer is I think I, I could answer your question more in the C. diff world than I can in the non-C. diff well, I'll tell you what I tell people, and I also sometimes preface this by saying I'm going to sound like a hippie, but I'm going to tell you what is the best way to regenerate your microbiome after a course of antibiotics is get outside into as many different, like go outside to the beach, go to the mountains, go to like sit under a tree and eat as many different fruits and vegetables as you can, because then you're going to be introducing all those good bacteria back into your gut and it's going to help you to replenish what was lost so you have to sit under a tree yeah with no shoes on i like the beach part of that the best i i <laughs> never mind the fruits and all of that i'm going to the beach <laughs> to be an apple at the beach watermelon that's a beach fruit. <laughs> watermelon at the beach now you got two things yep in the sun you're really you're winning. Um, well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. So I do have to ask you my final question that I ask all of my guests, and which is what is your one health and wellness tip that you would like to leave our listeners with today? I, I think take care of yourself right now. I, I, I think we're all uh, in, a, in a very different situation and environment. And I think uh, uh, attention to self-care and respect and care for others is is uh, more important now than it ever has been before. You know, recognizing the needs for individuals to connect with each other, and in this case, in a safe way, is, is so important. And and I think I think mental health is is hugely underrated, and it clearly impacts um, medical quote unquote medical health. Right. So your mental well being affects your blood pressure. Uh, etc. I I'm, won't go on any more about that, but I, I guess my message is take care of yourself and each other. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. You're welcome. Great talking to you. Yes, it was.